that I love to fish. <laughs> but I really love to fish for Adirondack brook trout. And I think it's because I find them so beautiful and fascinating, but it's also the places that you have to go to to find them. Places that they've lived from the, the dawn of time. Now, I have a few friends who also share this love, and each winter I put together a, a slideshow video of our adventures together because I like to take pictures too. And this past January, I was reminded as I was putting this together of our experience uh, one particular day at the end of May. We usually get together at a common meeting place and, you know, after we say, how, hi, how are you doing? The next question is, where are we fishing today, boys? And, you know, we had decided, okay, we're going to go north. And so as we started to drive, we saw off on to the, to the right-hand side a red orb that was very strange-looking to the point where we weren't sure if we were looking at the moon or the sun. And after some discussion and a quick look at the compass, we realized it was the sun. Um, but it was, it was very, very red. And um, when we got to the pond that we were going to fish, took our canoes off the truck and had hiked into the pond, usually when we come to these ponds at this time in May, there's like a yellow film on the water. And it's usually the pine dust from all the white pine in the area. But this day, it was covered in a looked like somebody had taken a fireplace, cleaned your fireplace out, you know, the ash, and just spread it all over the surface of the water. It was covered in this gray ash. And if you remember back in the spring, these, there were wildfires in Canada that were burning at that time, and the ash had been falling on the, uh, on the water. And one of the fun things about fishing in this pond, it's, it's surrounded on three sides by an esker. Now, an esker is, think of a, a reverse river of rock. So when the glaciers receded in this area, it deposited, when the ice melted, it left all the rock that these glaciers were carrying. And these eskers are very steep. They're not super tall, but they're very steep, and they surround these ponds. If you were to look on a typo, topographical map, you could actually see these running all the way to the St. Lawrence or to the Hudson, depending on where you are. And this particular pond has an esker that surrounds it on three sides. So you're paddling down, and all you can see is a steep cliff of pines. But as soon as you break through at one end of the pond, it flattens out into what was once an ancient river valley. And you can see for miles as the mountains just go off into this, off into the distance. And it's a really beautiful place to fish, but on this day, you couldn't see more than a half a mile down that valley. It was just completely clouded in <clears throat> dust and, and ash from these forest fires. And what we're going to see today is um, similar to that. The, the, you see, our experience of sin and sorrow in this world can sometimes cloud um, the majestic vista of, God, of God's grand design in life. And... Today, we're going to see the disciples overcome with grief over Jesus leaving. Now, Jesus has been preparing them all the way back to chapter 12 in John for his leaving. And like the smoke and ash of that particular day that would block the view, the disciples' grief does not allow them to see 
all the benefits that Jesus leaving will secure for them and for us. So let's take a look at John chapter 16. I'm going to begin in verse 4. So why don't you turn with that turn to that with me? I'll be reading from the ESV and then I'll pray and we'll begin. Verse 4. This is where Hunter ended last week. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Still, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guard, guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So our thoughts this morning are really going to focus on two key questions. What does this passage tell us about Jesus? And then what are the benefits and work of the Holy Spirit? So let's pray, and we'll begin. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word this morning. Holy Spirit, take the words before us and open the eyes of our hearts and minds. Show us ourselves, show us our need, and show us our Savior. For these things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, what does this tell us about Jesus? As I was preparing uh, to preach this morning, I was reminded in one of the commentaries that we need to keep in mind the idea that why are the gospel writers writing to us? Well, their principal purpose is to tell us what they saw, what they heard, so that we would believe. And so it's a good question to always ask when we're in the Gospels, what is it telling us about Jesus? And I think here we see two things in verses 5 and 6. First, he's concerned that the disciples and we would believe. He has been preparing them for his departure all the way back to chapter 12 when this discourse began. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 4 of John 16, I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Why is he saying that I'm telling you this so that when they come true, you'll remember? Well, he also said back in verse chapter 14, 
and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. So that's why he's telling these, them these things. He's telling them so that they would prepare when they see them coming true, that they would remember that he told them in advance and that would encourage their belief in him and strengthen that belief in him. <clears throat> so the whole future of this coming kingdom of God and the church rests on these disciples proclaiming that Jesus was the only son of God, that they were convinced that what he said was true and that he was who he said he was. And the whole, the whole, <clears throat> the whole future of the church rests upon them being taught by the Spirit to interpret everything that Jesus said. This encourages us that God has placed his confidence in us to extend his redeeming work by the Spirit through us. We follow in the path of these disciples who wrote and taught what Jesus said and did so that we would believe, and then we go forward to others and tell them what we have seen and what we have been taught so that they believe. So Jesus is first concerned that they would believe who he was and who he said he was. Second, this passage tells us that he is, shows us that he's a patient and understanding teacher. Jesus understood that their grief was not allowing them to see all that he was trying to tell them. He says in verse 5, but I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me where are you going. Why are they now incapable of asking Jesus where he's going? Peter asked this in chapter 13. Well, it's because of the grief that they're experiencing right at this moment when Jesus said he was leaving. He said, Jesus even tells us in verse 6, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And we can understand why they are grieving. These disciples have spent three years of their life with Jesus, leaving homes, businesses, and now he says he's leaving. They have become convinced that he is the Messiah who has come to usher in the long-anticipated kingdom of God. And just days before, they had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with the crowd, shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And now he tells them he's leaving. So we can understand why they would be grieving. Just like those wildflowers last spring clouded the view of the mountains beyond, their grief is so profound that they can't even hear what Jesus is telling them about the things that he has yet to accomplish for them. It will take the wind of the coming spirit to blow the haze of grief away to reveal the grand plan that the kingdom of God come to man through the establishing of the church by the Spirit's power. So he's an, understand, he's an understanding Jesus, but he's also an, a good teacher. Looks, look how he tells them just what they need to know while not overwhelming them with things they can't bear. In verse 12 and 13, he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Jesus is willing to tell them what they need to know now 
while leaving to the Spirit to guide the disciples into more truth later. Now, I don't know about your experience with the first day of school, but mine was not a great one. That was the most depressing day of the year. And <laughs> even when they start, you know, Staples runs that commercial, it's the most wonderful time of the year, you know, kids going back to school, my heart would just sink. <laughs> I think part of it was because I realized that my time outside and exploring was done, and now I was going to have to sit and listen to books or read books, and I was a poor reader. But I think the most depressing thing was when the teacher would get very excited about all the things we were going to do this next year. And, you know, this is what you're going to do, and that's what you're going to do, and my little mind's going, building this long checklist of things that I'm going to have to do. Just tell me what I need to do this week, tomorrow. Don't tell me what I need to do for the rest of the year. And maybe that's why I hate lists. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is that understanding teacher who's just telling them what they need to know. He, he's recognizing or he's going to send the Spirit to teach them the rest of the things that they will need to know. <clears throat> so Jesus is providing everything that they need to believe in him. And you have everything you need recorded for you in God's word. You have everything you need to believe. You may still have questions, but those questions probably don't need to be answered for you to believe. If you're here today and you're still exploring Christianity, we're honored to have you with us today. But you can confidently believe that everything you need to put your faith in Jesus is right before you in his word. The question for us today is whether we will believe that this Jesus presented to us in the Gospels is who they said he was and who he said he was or reject that testimony. So Jesus is he's a, a good teacher Jesus also finally will accomplish everything needed to save you. If you turn, to, if you look down, you'll see Jesus saying, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. Now, how is Jesus leaving an advantage to us and to the disciples? Well, first of all, the work of redemption has not been accomplished yet. Jesus still needs to die, rise, and ascend back to the Father for their redemption. And Jesus will not leave, will not leave them without securing everything necessary for their redemption and for ours. Jesus will complete the work. He will do everything necessary to achieve your salvation. The full work of redemption that Jesus accomplished stands as a monument to his undying commitment to your good. Christ completed the full work of redemption, and that serves to remind us that well, God will complete his full work in us. He doesn't leave us, and he will not leave you as an unfinished project. Uh, this time of year, I'm tying a lot of flies for the coming 
spring season. And when I tie a lot of flies for myself and for my friends, I often stage them. In other words, I don't complete one and then start another one. I tie them to a certain point, kind of like an assembly line. But what that does create is one big mess on my tying desk. I've got hair, yarn, hooks, thread everywhere. And, you know, if you just looked, you'd say, boy, that's a lot of unfinished work. Jesus doesn't do that to us. He completes the work that he started. You may feel like one big unfinished mess, but be patient. God will complete everything that is necessary for your salvation, and he will bring you to the end. Now, first of all, his leaving is an advantage that he will complete the work of redemption. Second, and here's where he refers, the coming of the helper will not take place until the full work of redemption is completed and Jesus ascends to the Father. But how is this helping ministry of the Spirit better than having Jesus there present? Well, the helping ministry of the Spirit covers two basic uh, functions in this text, and we'll look at them in just a moment, but here I'll just introduce them. First of all, the Spirit convicts. It says in verse uh, 8, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And the second function of the Spirit is to instruct. In verse 13, we read, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. While Jesus was physically on the earth in a human body, he could only be with the twelve. The coming Spirit will not be limited by a physical body subject to time and location. The Spirit will have a global ministry that the incarnate Son could not have had. And in this way, the promise of Emmanuel, God with us, is brought to all nations and to all generations. So finally, what does this text tell us about the benefits of the work of the Holy Spirit? And here there are three areas that the Spirit does his work. First, he applies redemption to us. Um, we speak theologically that the Father planned our redemption, the Son accomplishes our redemption, and the Spirit applies that redemption to us. The entire Trinity has a role in bringing us to salvation. But how does the Spirit accomplish that? Well, he does that first through this uh, role of convicting. Take a look at the end of verse 8. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So the sense here, and there's a lot of discussion among theologians and, and linguists about what Jesus is meaning with the word convict. And from my reading, there's really two, two good explanations, and people will say it's one or the other. I actually think it's both, so I'll present them both to you. First, this idea of convict. Now, <clears throat> here the sense is that the Holy Spirit is a prosecuting attorney presenting an, a case before a judge that leads to the conviction of the defendant. 
So convict has a way, has the sense of being called guilty, convicted of a crime. So who does the spirit do this to? Well, it tells us, it tells us that he convicts the world, the world concerning sin because they do not believe. This is the one place in, in the Bible where the spirit is spoken of as performing a work on the world. The sin of the world is the sin of rejecting the redeeming work of Christ. All who are not in Christ by faith will be found guilty of rejecting God's provision for a redeemer. If you choose to reject the redeeming work of Christ, please understand the case against you before a righteous judge is airtight. There is no escape. There will be no place to hide before God's judgment. So that's the sense of conviction in the, in the more legal sense, that it brings a conviction. But there's also coupled in this or enfolded into this idea of conviction that the individual as well is convicted of sin. So we had the Holy Spirit convicting the world, but if he's going to convict the world, he also convicts individuals. The Spirit has an ongoing role of convicting us of our sin and of our need of a Savior. This is how the redeeming work of Christ is applied to you. As a result of the convicting role of the Spirit and our response of faith, all the benefits that Christ secured come to us. Justification, adoption, sanctification, etc., as we've been considering sharing our faith in our community groups this year through reading the book Honest Evangelism, we have been reminded several times and encouraged that it is the Spirit's role to convict. Our, our role is to present the gospel message, no more. The Spirit is the one that does the convicting. The Spirit can fix, can convicts the world concerning righteousness. Now that's an interesting or kind of puzzling statement. Let's consider it. Jesus says he convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What is Jesus saying here? Well, while Christ walked the earth, his own righteousness served to convict the Jews of their hollow righteousness by visible example, they could see him. His very life convicted them or pronounced a guilty verdict on them. Their righteousness was an outward righteousness that was insufficient to acquit, acquit them. When Jesus is no longer present, it is the Spirit's role to convict indiv individuals like ourselves of our insufficient righteousness. The Spirit convicts concerning judgment. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection serve as the, <coughs> the, the convicting statement condemning Satan and all under his power. So are you standing under the Spirit's conviction of sin? Is your righteousness 
able to stand the scrutiny of a completely holy God. The Spirit is calling you to turn to the cross where your sin is paid for and a perfect righteousness is provided for you. Responding in faith to the convicting role of the Spirit is how he applies redemption that Jesus accomplished, how he applies it to you. So we have the Spirit's convicting role, and then we have the Spirit's teaching role. And here uh, we come down to, to verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So let's unpack that a little bit. There's a lot in there. First of all, this idea that he will guide in all the truth. He will take the words, the Spirit will, he will take the words of God the Father spoken by Christ the Son, and he will make them understood to the apostles. In this sense, the Spirit has a specific role to the eleven, plus the one that will be added from Judas's leaving, as they will be the initial instruments of making the gospel known to the church through their role of apostles. The Spirit will take what Christ taught and then guide the apostles into teaching the church. Today, the Spirit's work is to take what the apostles wrote in the New Testament and apply it to our lives today. Notice he says, he will not speak, the Spirit will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The Spirit does not speak apart from the words that Christ spoke. He does not speak outside the scriptures. He doesn't tell you who to marry or what job to take. And be very cautious with those who claim the Spirit told me X or God told me. The Spirit's role is to take what Christ taught and later the apostles taught it based on what they heard and apply it to your lives today. Yes, we are to use our wisdom in making choices where there are no clear moral leanings, but we are to, and we are to apply the principles that we see in the Bible, but he does not tell us specifically what to do unless we can point to something in Scripture and says, yeah, that's what Christ said. Notice he says, he will declare to you the things that are to come. What are these things to come that the Spirit will declare? Well, we do see on occasions the apostles addressing things that are even yet in the future for us, perhaps, but perhaps a more general way to think about this is understanding what Jesus is saying in regard to the things that are to, related to the establishment of the church and the kingdom of God. So those are the things, the more bigger uh, umbrella of things that are to come that the Spirit is speaking. As the Spirit performs this teaching role, he glorifies Christ as Christ glorified the Father. We read, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit only speaks what Jesus said, recorded for us in the Bible, and Jesus only said 
what the Father spoke to him. Notice how the different members of the Trinity yield and even submit to one another without any indication of rank or importance. And just as a sidelight, we would do well to consider this when we discuss this idea of yielding and submitting to one another. What we have in our hands in the Bible is the complete record of what we know, what we need to know to be redeemed and live in the kingdom of God. So let me suggest three implications for this text for our lives this morning. First, God has determined to work through you to accomplish his plan. Christ has accomplished everything necessary for our salvation. It is complete. It is finished, and it is completely efficacious. God has provided his spirit to convict the world of its sin. We are the messengers of that message. This should be a great encouragement to us. Our role is just to present the message and tell others around us what God has done, what God has said. The Spirit takes over and convicts those whom he is drawing to himself. Second, the Spirit has applied Christ's accomplished work of redemption to you. So our question is, has he done that? Has the Spirit's convicting role convinced you of your standing before God apart from Christ? You may believe everything that the Bible said about Jesus is true, but until the Spirit has convicted you of your guilt with regard to your sin of unbelief and your lack of righteousness in the face of Christ's perfect righteousness and your judgment of guilty before God, The Spirit has not applied what Christ has accomplished to you. So the call for us is to confess our sin, our need of Christ's righteousness, and ask the Spirit to apply Christ's finished work of redemption to us. Finally, third, and this is by no means an exhaustive list, but God has provided the means for your growth recorded in his word through the guiding and teaching ministry of the Spirit. He's provided everything you need to be complete in him. God's word is the means by which the Spirit teaches us. So the call to us is to resolve to take advantage of the opportunity to learn from God's word. We do this through regular church attendance or participating in a community group, studying the Bible with another brother or sister, and committing personal time in God's word. These are the means that God has provided for us to learn from the Spirit. Just like you can't expect a plant to grow if you don't put it in soil and water it, if you cut yourself off from the means God has provided for for your growth, you will not grow. So let's consider those things as we... we, um, leave here today and i'm just going to close in prayer as we give thanks for what god has shown us for what god has provided for us in sending his spirit that we might be complete in him